2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. If you have your Bibles, open there with me, please. 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. That's 358 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I look forward to seeing you all this afternoon at Gulf Creek Farm. Directions are available in the uh, lobbies for you as you leave uh, to get there to steal to Gulf Creek Farm from 3 to 5 this afternoon. Can't wait to see you all out there. And uh, one more thing I want to mention is next Sunday um, is the weekend where we'll recognize Veterans Day um, as a, a society. And one of the traditions that we've developed over the last several years is many of you will bring on Veterans Day memorabilia and other things from someone that you know who has served in the military. We're able to uh, see those things and, and experience those things, but most importantly, hear those stories in the hallways uh, before Sunday school and before church. And so I want to encourage you, if you do uh, have someone you'd like to honor in that way, to bring that with you next Sunday. There'll be tables set up in the hallways. But I want to encourage everyone, and maybe especially uh, those of us who are younger, who haven't heard all of these stories, uh, go spend some time in the hall if you can. And uh, one of my favorite things on this Sunday every year is to go hear the stories of others. It's a great way to build fellowship, a great way uh, to get to know one another better, and a good way to remember uh, what many have gone through in securing our freedoms here in the United States. So I want to encourage you to participate in that next Sunday morning. Well, we're going to be looking at verses eight. I mean, chapters eight and nine of Second Samuel. But I'm only going to read to you uh, chapter nine this morning. So, if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us, beginning in chapter nine, verse one. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. 
Now Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Zeba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for this portrait of grace that we see here in the text of Scripture. And God, I ask if you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word today. And God, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This was highlighted earlier in 1 Samuel in the life of Saul. And we see it here in the life of David as well. One of the essential duties of a king is to keep the kingdom safe. In fact, here even in our own country, we would understand that one of the essential duties of the government is to keep our nation safe. Uh, For David, though, this was not only just a duty of the king, but part of, in his mind, what it meant to carry out God's purposes and to serve the God who had appointed him king. Over and over again, I've tried to show you the way that David sees the way that something bigger is happening in his life and through his life. Something bigger than just merely him being king. In fact, David sees his kingship as part of God's reign and rule over and through his people. We saw David, or heard David reflecting on that earlier when uh, Nathan read the eighth psalm for us. There, David is clearly associating himself with Adam. Uh, God's first ruler in the world. And David is wondering and uh, being amazed by the fact that, that he is now part of this program that God has to bless the whole world and for his glory to cover the world like the waters cover the sea. It's one of the beauties we have is that the Psalms give us some insight into how David thought about his own kingdom, of how David saw his own kingship. He does something similar in the 68th Psalm. In this beautiful psalm, David uh, uh, spends time reflecting on the triumph of God. In fact, the 68th psalm paints a picture of God marching from Egypt to Jerusalem and His presence dwelling in Jerusalem and God along the way defeating His enemies. In other words, David is reflecting on the work that God is up to through Israel and he sort of personifies those battles that Israel fought as God Himself marching in battle, marching as to war. God shall arise. David says in Psalm 68, His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate Him shall flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched Through the wilderness, Selah. The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. There we see this picture of God leading his people out of Egypt and out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Ultimately, God leads his people all the way 
to Jerusalem, to his holy city. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about David bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem. And it's hard to believe that David is not in some ways reflecting on that day, even as he writes, Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And so what is David doing? David is reflecting in the 68th Psalm on his own role in the procession of God on behalf of his people. He, David the king, fights battles against those who hate God in order that God's people might experience the love and grace of God safely in God's city. And in order that, ultimately, all peoples might know God. All the nations might know God. He's living out, he sees himself. What God originally intended for Adam to do, what God intended for Abraham to do, God is now at work through David and the dynasty that he's giving David. David is at work bringing that about. Psalm 68 closes like this. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. My friends, God's purpose and program, that He's at work bringing about, first through Adam's broken through the fall, and then through the covenant promise to Abraham, but Abraham didn't see the promise fulfilled in his life. It goes forward. The promise keeps going forward to Moses, and Moses doesn't see it fulfilled in his life. And now to David. What is God up to? What is God doing? It's to bless all those who trust in Him not only in Israel, but throughout the whole world, to show His grace, His loving kindness to His people. Uh, This morning, I want to show you three truths about the grace that God gives to His people. Three truths this morning about God's grace. Here's the first truth. God's grace triumphs over judgment. God's grace triumphs over judgment. Let's back up just a little bit to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a sort of uh, aside in the middle of 2 Samuel. We have a a few of these that happen throughout the book that that sort of interrupt the story briefly to give an overview of some aspect of David's career, some aspect of what David did. Earlier we had one of these that sort of gave a sort of summary of David's triumphs as king. Here we have a narrower summary of David's military triumphs. What a great military ruler and leader he was. As God arises through David and the armies of Israel, his enemies, this chapter is showing us, are scattered and those who hate God flee from before him. Over and over and over again we see in chapter 8 the military triumph and victory of David. Of course, first and foremost, verse 1, the perennial enemy of Israel is listed. David subjugated the Philistines. 
He subdued them. He took Metheg Emma out of the hand of the Philistines. Perhaps this is a little bit, I don't really know exactly where that was, but perhaps this is a little bit of a, of a show of the fact that some of Saul's victories were conceded back to the Philistines in his desire late in his kingship to destroy David. He took his eye off the ball, let the Philistines take some territory back over. Second of all, we see the Moabites and the Edomites in Verse 2 of chapter 8, and then in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8, they become vassal states. That is, David beats them just enough to where they don't really pose a military threat, but not so thoroughly that they can't pay tribute back to him and back to his kingdom. What else does he do? David expanded his empire all the way to the Euphrates River, and he, in so doing, incapacitated the armies of Zobah and Syria, and established garrisons of soldiers there to enforce his reign. One odd thing here is the Bible says that David took a certain amount of horses, but the rest of them he hamstrung. What that was to do was to make it so they couldn't be used for military purposes, but they could be used for practical purposes like farming or whatever else. So it allows these vassal states that are subjugated to continue to have an economy, but not to be able to mount an attack. And on top of that, not only do they not have horses for their chariots, but on top of that, he establishes, as I said, garrisons of soldiers in these areas to enforce his reign. The military might of Israel was such that the news of what David was doing got to a man named Toy of Hamath, and he decided to send his son as an emissary uh, over to David with tribute to go ahead and establish peace with the house of David. And thus, some of what God has promised to David is already being fulfilled, that the nations would pay tribute to the son. They already begin to do so when they see this great prowess. Israel's military had. Now, on the heels of this litany of military conquests and a description at the very end of, of essentially David's cabinet, those who, who helped him carry out his reign and rule, chapter 9 opens. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Now think about this for a moment. We're looking at an absolute unmitigated record of military conquest. There is a lot of bloodshed in chapter 8. There's a lot of a highlight of the strength and ability that the king of Israel has to keep Israel safe. It's the sort of thing you want to read about. It's the sort of thing you want to see if you're an Israelite. Our king gets the job done. We are safe in our walls so long as David is on the throne. And now you might assume, when David says, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul, the former king, the one who tried to kill me? If he's asking this question, you might assume he's trying to make sure that there's no one else that could come take the throne, that might have any sort of a claim to the throne of Israel. Anyone else who the people might say, Well, he does have a point. He is Saul's grandson, or he is Saul's great grandson, or he is Saul's nephew. Perhaps we might assume that the bloodshed will continue. David, we might assume, is drunk on power and success, and he wants to be sure that his dominion and his dynasty have no threats, whether that is from a Philistine or from a member of Saul's family. But the sentence finishes differently than we might expect. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul 
that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. You may remember that David and Jonathan had a special bond, a a special friendship, and David committed to Jonathan, covenanted with him that he would show mercy to his descendants in the future. But let's not forget for a moment that all of Saul's house deserved judgment. God had said that they deserved to be wiped from the face of the earth. But here in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 9, we meet a man named Mephibosheth. One of Saul's servants was still alive. His name was Ziba. They brought Ziba to David. And he reminds us here in verse 3 of a character we were introduced to earlier, a character named Mephibosheth. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And Ziba tells him where he is. All of Saul's house deserve judgment. But here we meet Mephibosheth, on whom the mercy of God would rest. There's a little bit of irony to Mephibosheth's story. A sad irony. Mephibosheth was disabled in his feet. Because as a little boy, when his father and grandfather died, tragically in war, his nanny took him up and in fleeing, he was five years old, in fleeing she fell, running from the wrath that she expected to come. She was running and when she fell, Mephibosheth fell and was injured. And he was disabled in his feet, no longer able to run, no longer presumably able to walk, no longer certainly able to fight. Mephibosheth was injured because the nurse expected wrath, but instead, here we see him receiving God's mercy. David says it explicitly, I want to show God's kindness to someone. Friends, James later in the New Testament tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. And here we see the grace of God at work in the life of David and at work in the life of Mephibosheth. And we see the grace of God triumphing over judgment. As God is judging the nations around Israel, and as God has already judged the house of Saul, God, rather than adding to the bloodshed, adding to the great martial victories of David, instead, God inserts here in 2 Samuel chapter 9 a portrait of grace, a testimony of His mercy. In the midst of all of this bloodshed, all of this fighting, As David's enemies flee before him, the one who cannot flee, the one who cannot run, is the one who receives grace. God's grace triumphs over judgment. Second of all, God's grace is for the undeserving. God's grace is for the undeserving. In verses 4 through 8, David sends. Saul's servant Ziba to go get Mephibosheth and bring him to him. And when Mephibosheth sees the king, he falls on his face and pays homage. Now, I want you to consider the fact that with the disability in his feet that Mephibosheth had, getting down on his face before the king could not have been made any easier. And yet, that's what he does. And David says to him, Mephibosheth, And Mephibosheth answers, Behold, I am your servant. And I want you to hear what David says to him in verse 7. 
Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And we'll talk a little more about what David does for Mephibosheth, but right now I want you to focus on how Mephibosheth responds. Now you might expect a young man who's disabled in his feet, you might expect him to have the same sort of bitter attitude that his grandfather had. Blaming David for the circumstances he's in. Blaming David for the fact that he no longer owned the lands that his grandfather and father, we could argue, were due. It belonged to them. Bitter over the fact that he is not the king of Israel. And, and you might expect him to come in with his, his chest out a little bit when he comes before the king. To, just to say, I'm willing to die to die with pride. But that's not what Mephibosheth does. That's not how Mephibosheth answers. He pays homage again to him and he says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? An unclean animal that is also dead. Doubly unclean. Do you see? My friends, I, I want you to know something. When we expect grace, it's no longer grace. When we think we deserve grace, it's no longer grace. When we expect to receive mercy, it's not really mercy any longer. You see, we cannot receive grace until we come to a place of humility before God. Just like Mephibosheth was in a place of humility before David, we must often be reminded that we need to be humble before God. We so desperately need to remember that God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. God gave us our lives. God gave us the breath that we breathe. God gave us the ability to know and love Him. And at every Chance we have turned to sin instead of toward God, and yet God still loves us. God has still set His grace upon us. Mephibosheth saw, him, saw himself merely as a dead dog. And we might look at that and say, that's a terrible way to live. We, we ought to feel better about ourselves. We ought to buy into the power of positive thinking. But, but I want you to know that what God offers and the grace that He offers, and even when we come to Him in humility, it's ultimately uplifting and freeing. Here's the reality. The fact that God would fix His loving grace upon you is one of the most uplifting faults that you can have. There's nothing more beautiful than the fact God loves us. Nothing says we're more than a dead dog than the fact that God loves us and He's fixed His grace upon us. But God's grace is also freeing in the sense that you do not earn it. You do not work to keep it. Everyone in here feels guilty about something. Everyone in here feels guilty about something. And what the world will try to tell you is the way to be done with your guilt is to just simply feel better about yourself. Uh, the, the way to feel better about your guilt, the way to do better is to think po more positively about yourself. To remember that you are enough, that you are sufficient, that you can do it on your own. The problem with that is it actually does nothing to help you with the guilt you feel. Because what the guilt actually does is continue to tell you you're not enough. 
You've done wrong things. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've done something wrong or said something wrong, I'll lay awake in bed at night and think about it for hours. Just something dumb I've said or something wrong that I've said. I'll worry about it. I'll try to process it. This is how grace is freeing. Not for me to come here to you today and say, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. Because the reality is there will be a day when you're not. But for me to come here to you today and say, even when you're not enough, even when you can't do it, God can. God loves you. God keeps you. There's nothing you can do to earn His grace, and there's nothing you can do to keep His grace. He loves you no matter what you do. What freedom there is in that truth. My friends, God's grace triumphs over judgment. God's grace is for the undeserving. And finally, God's grace is extravagant. God gives us extravagant grace. Notice verse 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, David keeps his promise that he's given to Mephibosheth. All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba, Saul's servant, also had multiple servants of his own. This is showing how wealthy the house of Saul really was. If your servant has servants, that means there's a lot of wealth in the household. And so if it takes this many servants to work the land, that tells you there's a lot of wealth and a lot of land that's coming there. God is, through David, giving Mephibosheth what he seemingly would have deserved, what he would have, what would have been his by his right from his family, and yet David is giving that. This shows you that God's grace is extravagantly restorative. God gives back what the locusts eat. God restores what is broken. Friends, we live in a broken world. Uh, We live in a world where things aren't right. And I want you to know, though, that God's grace restores. And you see this in Mephibosheth receiving Saul's lands. But David goes beyond just giving Mephibosheth what he seemed to deserve. He goes beyond restoration. In fact, God's grace is extravagantly beyond expectations. Notice what the Bible says in verse 10. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Wouldn't that be a sufficient? You have an estate, you have a place, you have a place to go, you have food to eat, everything you have, and I'm going to stay out of your way and you're going to stay out of mine and that will be that. But David goes beyond it. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And then Ziba said to the king, according to what the Lord the king commands, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. God's grace is extravagant. David doesn't stop at merely restoring Mephibosheth, he treats him like his very own son. He takes a prince from the house of his enemy and sits him and treats him at his table like a prince from his very own house. Treats him like one of his own 
sons. Similarly, my friends, God does not stop at mere mercy, at mere forgiveness. God is lavish with His grace. He goes extravagantly above and beyond. And I want you to consider for a moment how God has done that through His Son, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through a descendant of David, through the fact that when God came into the world to save us, He didn't simply send someone on His behalf. God stepped into history Himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ to save us. We are not only forgiven of our sins and sent off with a restoration of what we were before. No, we are taken a step beyond that. We are adopted into God's family. In fact, the Bible says we are co-heirs with Jesus. It could not be more true that we are literally treated like a son of the King through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God's grace is extravagant. And I want you to see this God of grace. God is on the march. God is at work. God is triumphing. Not only in Egypt, not only in the wilderness, not only in Canaan, not only in Jerusalem, not only all the way to the Euphrates, not only is God triumphant in Abraham, not only is God triumphant in Moses, not only is God triumphant in David, God is triumphant throughout all the world through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. God is on the march. God is on the move. The Lord gives the word, Psalm 68 tells us, right in the middle of the psalm. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee. They flee. As God marches, as God moves, Those who hate Him are scattered. The kings of the armies flee before Him. And here we see the one king, the one prince who could not flee, who could not run. In fact, the one king who was maimed in his fleeing, not being wiped off the face of the earth, Not being treated like a dead dog, but being treated like a son of the king. Mephibosheth, whose grandfather made himself an enemy to God and to King David, now has royal riches and royal honor restored to him. Isn't it just like God? To take the one who could not flee, the one who could not fight, over and over and over again. The Bible mentions the fact. It says it multiple times over. He was crippled in his feet. He was crippled in both of his feet. The Bible can barely get the name Mephibosheth out before it reminds us of the fact that he was crippled in this way. And you can imagine how many people there were who still harbored some loyalty to Saul who might look at Mephibosheth and say, what a shame. What a shame that that mighty warrior Jonathan, that the only son he had, was crippled in both of his feet. Isn't it just like God to take that one? The one who sees himself as nothing more than a dead dog. And to show him grace that triumphs over judgment. Grace that elevates his humble station. Grace 
that is extravagant by any measure. You see God on the march. You see the kings of the world fleeing. My friends, I want you to know that as God is moving through the world, God is on a march of mercy. God is on a campaign of grace. He continues to march through history. He continues to triumph through His anointed one. And even now, through the preaching of His Word, God is here to conquer. But He is not here to conquer by forcing you into submission. He is here to conquer by offering you lavish, untold, amazing grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see what God is doing? Your guilt has pressed you to flee from God because you're afraid of His wrath. But as He bears down upon you today, do you see that it's His mercy that triumphs over judgment? Your unworthiness has made you look away and look down in shame from God because you feared Him. But do you see as God is marching on that that is precisely why He is offering you grace. It's your unworthiness where God is meeting you today. Oh my friend, God is upon you. God is marching even now. God is bearing down on us at this very moment. And yet rather than bearing down on us in wrath, God is inviting you to be united to His Son by faith. The very King of Heaven asks you today, would you come and dine with me now and forevermore? God is here and He invites you to dine at His table. Friends, brothers, sisters, the kings of the earth, the kings of the armies, they flee. They flee. But you don't have to run anymore. You don't have to turn away anymore. You don't have to feel like a dead dog anymore. You've been invited to the table of the king. Today, I want you to respond to God in faith through Jesus. Today, no matter how you may feel, no matter where you may be, no matter what you may be doing, you can join the family of God. God is on the march. God is on the move. Would you respond to His grace today? Second of all, not only do I wish that you would trust Jesus if you haven't done that for the first time, but second of all, you may be a believer. And you may say, Pastor, I need a few moments or I need someone to talk to about drawing near to the Lord as He's drawn near to me through His Word today. This altar is open for you. You can do business right where you are. If you need someone to talk to, that's what I'm down here for. Or you can grab me after the service is over. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.